Well, I don't know whether you're one of the people who found themselves crying when you watched the UK Blessing video for the first time. I know when I watched it for the first time, I was just a wreck. In fact, I have watched it loads of times and I, I can't watch it without crying. Uh, and yes, I, I was weeping because of the sense of unity that the video represents. Uh, I was weeping uh, because this blessing is for my children and their children and their children. And yes, I, I was weeping because it's the prayer that my mom used to pray over me every night before I went to bed. And, and yes, uh, I was weeping because it's just a beautiful song. But I was also weeping because I kept thinking about all the people I know outside of the church who I am desperate to hear it. Not, not just the song, but the message within it, particularly the truth of that simple refrain, he is for you, he is for you. And the sense that I've had over the last couple of weeks is that as his church, as his people, as witnesses, as beneficiaries of God's goodness, his grace, his love, the sense that I've had is this, that we must not lose confidence in the power of the gospel to bring kingdom transformation into the lives of people across our country right now. And the heart of the gospel is this, God is for you. And yet the tragedy is that we know that, that for most people outside of the church, this isn't the message that they hear most of the time. I love what John Tyson was saying last night about the difference between the story and the narrative. And it feels like, doesn't it, we have a unique opportunity to speak a new narrative into people's lives. You know, when the UK blessing was first released, uh, amongst all the amazing responses and comments that were made, that there were one or two comments posted about how our rotten and backslidden nation needed to hear a different kind of message. Where was the line about God's judgment, about God's wrath, about the need for repentance? How could we sing over our sinful nation that God is for you? How can, how can we say that God wants to bless this nation? And, and yes, God is the ultimate judge. And yes, God is so holy and so other. And yes, God takes our sin very seriously. And yes, we all fall horribly short of the glory of God. And yes, there is so much about our culture right now that feels rotten and broken. And yes, as a nation, for the most part, it does feel like we have turned our back on God. And yes, if we are going to see the next great awakening, then surely it will begin in humility and repentance. As 2 Chronicles 7.14 says, but, but the gospel that we stand on, says Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, the gospel that we stand on, it is a gospel of grace, undeserved, unmerited grace. It's Jesus who satisfied the wrath of God. It's Jesus who paid the price for our sin and it's his kindness. It's his mercy that leads to repentance. I'm absolutely convinced that this is the message that our nation needs to hear right now. And I believe that the Holy Spirit is wanting to embolden us to ignite his people, to ignite his church with a new confidence, with a new courage, a new compassion to carry this me message to a nation whose ears are open to hear it in a way that they haven't been for a very long time. 
You know, there are so many people in the UK right now that have a misconception of what God is like, of who God is. And I wonder if for a lot of people, or for even for most people, actually, the problem isn't actually believing that there could be a God, but believing that God is good, believing that God is for them, maybe that's a different issue. And I wonder if one of the, the barriers that stops people from receiving this message of grace is this thing that we call shame. And shame is something that all of us experience to a greater or lesser degree. And shame is essentially the feeling that we have when something vulnerable about ourselves has been exposed and we feel powerless to cover it up. I remember a, a number of years ago now when Tim and I were living in London, uh, Tim was doing some filming a little bit like this. He was filming a series of interviews for a, a worship album that he was releasing at the time. And I can remember on the morning of the filming, uh, Tim had said that the, that the film crew wanted to create this kind of homey and relaxed feel. So they were going to use our home to film these interviews. And would I mind just making myself scarce so they could just get on with it? And I, that was fine. And so I headed off for the morning. And then several weeks later, this DVD arrived in the post. It was the final version of this project that Tim had been working on. Uh, and so uh, we hit play uh, and we began to watch. And I should point out that we didn't have a tumble dryer in London at that time. Uh, and so we just used to dry our laundry by kind of hanging it out around the house. And to my horror, in virtually every shot, there was Tim looking lovely, but in the background was our living room radiator. And on our living room radiator was this neat little row of my underwear. Not even my nice underwear either. You know, when we think about shame, it's really important that we understand the difference between conviction and shame. You know, conviction is often the first thing we feel when we come into the presence of God. Maybe for the first time, we become aware of the things in our lives that aren't good, that aren't right. We experience this overwhelming desire to bring those things to God, our mess, our mistakes, trusting that he is longing to forgive, knowing that his capacity to forgive us brings about this freedom that we're longing for. And this conviction often drives us towards God, but shame is different. Shame drives us away from God. If conviction says, I did something bad, then shame says, I am bad. You know, shame causes us either to self-protect, we put up a wall, we shut people out, or self-destruct, we reach for those familiar control mechanisms or, or, or addictions. You know, the author and shame researcher, Brené Brown, she describes shame as the fear of disconnection. The fear of disconnection. If you really knew me, you wouldn't want connection with me. And for this fundamental reason, shame dramatically impacts a person's desire to want to connect with God, to want to connect with the church for that matter. Now, there was a period in my own life, in my early 20s, when I couldn't walk into a church without feeling this heavy weight of shame. I hadn't stopped believing in God, but I, I felt so much shame and conviction too, but, but mostly shame. And on the rare occasion that I would walk into a church, I just wanted to walk straight back out again. I felt like I wasn't good enough to be there. I didn't deserve to be there. I didn't belong. And so this shame just, just kept me away from God. 
And I think there are so many people, some of us watching now, whether we recognise it or not, that live in and live out of that place of shame. And you know, shame makes people believe that God couldn't or shouldn't like them. That God wants to include, to exclude them somehow, that, that, that God is against them. And it's true, of course, that there will be patterns of sin in people's lives that, that God hates. But as we read through the Gospels, we have to conclude that God's heart is for the ones who feel ashamed. His heart is for the ones who feel excluded on the outside. And you know, just recently, I came across these two words in the book of Mark, two words that I hadn't really noticed before, but two words that just totally floored me in the moment as I read these verses. And it's the moment that many of us will be familiar with. It's the moment when the women arrive at the tomb in Mark 16 on that very first Easter morning. These amazing women, these courageous, faithful followers of Jesus who show up at the tomb that morning when everything seems lost. And when they arrive, we know that what they discover is that the stone has been rolled away and sitting on the stone as is this angel. And this angel has been sent by God with a message. And this message is arguably the most important message ever delivered to the human race. The message is he is risen. Jesus is alive. This is a massive day for God. God has got one or two things going on on this particular day. This is an incomparably significant day. And within this cosmically sized message that God gives to the angel to share with the women, we find these two words, two words that are so deeply personal, two words that reveal God's heart for the broken, two words that relate to someone in the story that isn't at the tomb that morning. The angel says, he is risen, but go tell his disciples and Peter and Peter. And if you know anything about this story, you'll know that Peter has just blown it just hours earlier. Having spent the best part of three years at Jesus's side, Peter denies even knowing Jesus. Can you imagine what Peter must have been feeling at that exact moment that morning? He has failed so badly. He has let down the one person that would never let him down. He, he has abandoned the one person that would never leave him. He has denied knowing the one person that would ever truly know him. He must have felt a sense of conviction, yes, but can you imagine his shame that morning? Deep shame and, and that feeling of exclusion. He's disconnected from the disciples. He's disconnected from Jesus and God knows and sees the depths of his shame and this connection and God loves Peter. And on this day, this day of all days, and in that message, that earth shattering message, almighty God sends an angel with a message to say, go and tell the disciples and Peter. The trajectory of Peter's life and destiny is dramatically transformed within the implication of those two words and Peter. Peter's redemption begins within those two words and Peter. Go and tell Peter that it isn't over. Tell Peter that he's not disqualified. Tell Peter that I'm coming for him. Tell Peter that I did this for him. Tell Peter that I have a plan for his life that will blow his mind. Tell Peter that he's forgiven. 
And I believe that God is wanting to extend that full measure of grace to anyone who turns to him. He's longing to smash through the shame, to smash through the lies and the preconceptions. A couple of months ago, my friend Danielle told me a story about a friend of hers who happens to be a sex worker in a brothel. And they would meet up regularly just to, to chat about life and everything else. And one day, this woman told Danielle that her mother had been unmarried when she got pregnant with her. And just a few months after this woman was born, she had taken the baby, this woman, to the local church to ask the priest if this baby could be baptized. And the priest refused. He said to this woman's mother, there's no amount of holy water that could wash the shame off this baby. And you know, when I heard that, I just felt so angry. I just began to think of all the things that I would want to say to that priest if I had been there. And then I calmed down and I repented of my judgmental spirit. But what I would have wanted to say very nicely and calmly is this. You know, your holy water may not be good enough for this little girl, but, but somehow, somewhere along the line, you seem to have forgotten that just one drop of my Saviour's blood was enough to wipe the shame off the entire human race. Jesus Christ was humiliated to take away our humiliation. He was shamed to remove our shame and God will take any opportunity that he can to reach those that are far away and say to them, and Peter, and Rachel. And it's in these two words that, that our human imperfection meets his redemption, that our brokenness meets his grace. And I believe that God at this time is calling the prodigals home, those who have counted themselves out, those who feel like they can never come back. Now, there's this old folklore story about a man in prison who is coming to the end of his prison sentence. And he knows he's done wrong. He, he knows he's hurt the people that love him the most. And so the story goes that he, he writes this letter from prison just weeks before his release to let his loved one know that he's coming home. But he's anxious. He's anxious to know whether he will be accepted, whether his loved ones will welcome him home. And so in the letter, he instructs them to do this. He tells them to tie a yellow ribbon around the oak tree that stands at the entrance of the town. And this yellow ribbon will be like a symbol that he is welcome to come home. And so he says in the letter that if there's no ribbon, if he sees no ribbon around that oak tree, he'll know that he's not welcome home and that he should just move on. And so days before his release, he's feeling the anxiety of that moment. And then on the day of his release, he makes the journey home. And as he approaches the town, he comes within, just within eyeshot of that oak tree that stands on the edge of the town and he can, he can barely bring himself to look. But as he gets closer, all he can see is just this river of yellow. There's not just one ribbon, but there are hundreds of yellow ribbons. Each yellow ribbon symbolizing forgiveness, symbolizing grace, symbolizing welcome and redemption. 
Now, what does it look like for us to champion the prodigals in our everyday lives? What does it look like uh, for us to put out yellow ribbons in the way that we speak, in the way that we live our lives? What does it look like for the artists in what you create, uh, for us who, who are leading churches online right now, how we communicate? What does it look like for those of us who are in the workplace, whatever that looks like right now? We are God's mouthpiece for this message of grace and I believe he's calling us to communicate to anyone who will listen God is for you God doesn't just tolerate you God isn't angry with you he loves you and he is for you and he is longing to welcome you home we need to litter our towns our streets our cities with thousands of yellow ribbons we're the welcoming committee, and I am believing for a massive welcome home party, albeit maybe socially distanced. You know, there's that moment in the parable of the prodigal son. You know, that moment when the son returns home. This son, this son who has rejected his father at the deepest possible level. This son who has brought such public shame and disgrace on his family. Uh, this son stands at the edge of the village and the father runs to the son. And you know, a respected middle-aged man in the Middle East at that time would never have run, like never ever would have been seen running. In fact, it would have been considered that the epitome of humiliation for a man, a well-respected man to have run under any circumstances. But the father runs, the father runs to the son because he's overjoyed, of course, he's overjoyed at the sight of his son coming home, but he also runs because he has to get to the son before the villagers get there. There's no yellow ribbon from the rest of the village for this young man. The whole village would have felt the disgrace of his actions. And if they get there first, who knows what those villages will say and do to the son. And so the father runs. This is not a cheap gospel. This is not a watered down gospel. This is the gospel that Jesus taught. There is nothing cheap about grace. The theologian Ken Bailey describes it as the costly demonstration of unexpected love. We cannot determine what a person chooses to do with this gift of outrageous grace that God offers to every human heart. But we can be determined to communicate this gospel message with our words and action whenever and wherever opportunity arises. And opportunity is arising everywhere right now. This is the time for us to take our place. And I end with this. If we're gonna see the narrative of grace being spoken over individuals and over our nation, then it has to be a work of the Holy Spirit, which brings us back to the why of why we gather like this. You know what, there are gonna be setbacks, there are gonna be disappointments. We know that there will be people that won't wanna know. There will be persecution, we will be misunderstood. There will be times where we feel tempted to lose heart. We will be tempted to even think that the gospel doesn't work. This has to be a work of the Holy Spirit, otherwise it is utterly futile. 
We need to allow the Holy Spirit to fill us again, like he did at Pentecost, to, to fill us with that renewed boldness, that renewed courage and confidence, with new compassion for those who don't know his grace. And so that's what we're going to do now. I'm going to hand back over to Pete and to Sammy as they lead us in a time of prayer ministry, as we allow the Spirit to fill us again to fill us again, to empower us again, that we, we as his church, as his people, might be those who carry this message of grace to a nation who badly need to hear it right now. Amen. Seeking you will find, I feel like I've been seeking. Why have I not found the thing I need? If the fault is mine, I need you to show me Why have I not found the thing I need? And as I sit, embrace the silence I will find the thing I need Embrace the stillness 